I think there's something to be said for working the quote-unquote corporate job. It also has practical skills that relate to your passion project. So I was working for many years in animation and ultimately now illustration is a big part of my art practice. But I wasn't working as an artist in an animation studio. I was a production coordinator. Like I was in marketing. I wasn't using my creative skills. I was like approving bung plush toys of Blinky Bill that didn't look anything like Blinky Bill. Like I wasn't using that, but I thought to myself, you know what, if I'm working in an animation studio, chances are that I'm going to get to know the directors, the art directors, the creatives, and the people in admin and the people in finance, and I will get to learn how to structure a creative business. And what a wonderful thing to be exposed to all those, all the facets of that business. So I would advise people to try and think about what is the practical quote-unquote corporate version of the job or the, the passion project that they're interested in. Get your foot in the door, start at the very bottom, but take notes from absolutely everyone in the organization because it's all gold. You're basically getting paid to go to university. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy, and this is Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. How do you turn what you love into what you do? Well, each episode, I'll talk to my favorite creatives to discuss the tools and tricks associated with monetizing your passions, to turn it into a career or to bring it to life in tandem with your nine to five. Here at Quit Your Day Job, we believe that the pursuit of what you love is just a process and one that is available to anyone. So what are you waiting for? Your journey to feeling more connected to who you are and what you do starts now. My guest today is designer, artist and pop culture phenomenon Stav Adamitis, aka Frida Las Vegas. I have long been a fan of Stav's creative output, from her illustration, to her actually lol-inducing Instagram captioning, to the practical application of her aesthetic through jewellery design and now fashion and textiles. She's one of the most focused and dedicated practitioners I've observed, a masterclass in leveraging your skills to earn an income to facilitate a creative practice that speaks to your soul. I wanted to talk to Stav about the practical side of how she structures her day and designs the life to facilitate the work. She shares wisdom around motivation, determination, and how to tackle the process of moving into a career path that is aligned with not only what you love to do, but what you need to do. As always, can I ask that if you enjoy the podcast, please do what you can to share the love. You can write a review and rate us on iTunes. You can share a link for an episode that you've really enjoyed via text message. Or, and this is the most effective, screen capture the point in the episode that you're listening to and you're really inspired by and post it to your Instagram stories or Facebook stories. And don't forget to tag me at Dan Brophy so that I can repost it on my channels. And now it's time for my chat with the incomparable, the millennial Kendone, the flashy girl from Leichhardt, Stav Adamatis, aka Frida Las Vegas. Enjoy. I like to start by saying... When someone says, what do you do? What do you tell them? I tell them that I'm schlepping my way through life. <laughs> I find that literally the hardest question to answer 
in the whole world for a few reasons. Number one, because if you say what you actually do, in my case, I would have to list like 10 different sort of jobs in different skill sets in different arenas, which sounds really, really A, wanky, B, like I don't know what I'm doing and C, that I'm unprofessional. Um, So I don't like to say that. Then if I say what I'd like to do, like a future projection of like my future dream with my goal, then that sounds even wankier in Australia's sort of tall poppy society. So either way, I, I really stumble upon this question and I just keep it simple. And I think you and I were chatting about this and I came to the conclusion, I just say I'm an artist and a designer. I don't say exactly what kind of artist, what kind of designer, could be graphic, could be video, could be web, could be games design. I keep it as vague as possible because usually there's no follow-up question to that. Well, it's also good because if you're dealing with someone who is more artistically minded, they can zero in on the artist part of things if you choose. That's right. And if you're dealing with someone who's much more pragmatic, like your parents. (laughs) Oh my God, my parents want to hear, I'm a doctor or a lawyer. (laughs) But no, they gave up on that dream many years ago. So how does being an artist and designer look for you at this point in the year? I guess I don't really have that many... I don't have that many templates of like what an artist and designer is outside of, I guess, the traditional zone of like artist in a studio, painting, has a show in an art exhibition, uh, maybe maybe can travel the world and have residencies. And for me, that doesn't apply. That world seems really old, antiquated. The gallery system doesn't embrace the kind of work that I do. So I've had to challenge that world and go all right I'm never going to be a part of the traditional quote unquote you know bunny fingers artist world so what how can I change that and how can I make that world bend to my ideas because you and I both know enough artists to know that those who are part of the art world hate it so you know did you look at the world of what it is to be an artiste and go, not for me? Or was it never on the cards for you anyway? Look, I think I, look, I looked at that world from the outside looking in. And I just, I just thought, I don't think that I'm going to be let in. Because my observations are that that world is, you know, you, you pretty much have to start off going to art school. And even then in Sydney, there's a particular road for like the people that study at National Art School that's mapped out versus the students that go to COFA. And... I didn't go to art school. I studied a media and arts degree in Adelaide. Um, But I think not coming from that background was probably not a great idea. And in hindsight, of of course, I wish I could turn back the the clock and do that. But I'm also a believer in the school of just do it. Like, you don't have to go to school and get a piece of paper to be or do anything. Like the great Snoop Dogg said, ain't nothing to it but to do it. And so I came over that, overcame that fear of, well, I haven't gone to art school. I don't have these connections. You know, my work is pop art, which often gets looked down in the serious art world. Even today, do you think it does? Absolutely, because it's fun. And because it's fun and it's colourful and it's not particularly dark and it's commercial and there's still this idea that if art is inherently commercial then it it loses its intrinsic value i mean we can go on for hours about you know does damien hurst and tracy emin and their work is incredibly commercial and pulls in the big bucks um you know and it's not necessarily pop so i don't think i don't think pop art really i think pop art gets 
a bit of a bad rap, um, but especially at the sort of emerging-ish stage that I'm at. Actually, I really hate the word emerging. I feel like emerging is code word for crap in Australia. Really? So, do you think? Yeah, I, I think I, so. I, I think emerging is, is exciting because it means that you're not... You, you know, it's it's you don't need to be judged on the value of what you're doing currently because it's it's in in the works. It's under construction. I hope so. I guess when I've you know I've never applied for a grant and I look at the paper and all the forms and and it always says, "Are you established or emerging?" And having to tick that box, I mean, that's like that's like asking you to say, you know, is your heart half full or is it? only a little bit full because you haven't lived that many years to know what a full heart feels like. Like established or emerging compared to whose standards. And so, you know, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. And if I fail, if I succeed, <laughs> just to um, create my own definition of what that can be. And that's changing. This is, it's a daily ritual and it's a daily thought process that I go through. And some people, when they ask me, you know, what do you do? To come back to your first question, I show them. I pull out my phone and say, here, here's what I do. You can look at it and you can make your own decision. And the feedback that I get from that is, you know, oh, wow, like this is, this is really fun. This reminds me of my mum in the 80s. Or, and generally people pick up on the nostalgic pointers that, that I have created the work in mind with. And that's really satisfying. And I think there's a difference between doing things because you want to be known as the title. Like, I guess films are a really great arena for this, where some people choose to make films because they want to be directors rather than making films. So I'm trying to let the work speak for itself and not my words, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's a really, it's a theme that comes up all the time in this podcast, how disheartening it is or how by the contrary, how enriching it is to let the audience decide for themselves and to just focus on the love of the game. Absolutely. So, uh, when I first met you, you were identifying as more of a designer. Mm-hmm. And your main focus was jewellery. Mm-hmm. You're still wearing Perspex earrings, which are from a 2016 Frida Las Vegas vintage? 2015, I believe. (laughs) Going for the classic Barbie shape today. (laughs) And so within the time that we've known each other, so three or four years, that has evolved into a new form of creative expression. Do you want to talk to me about the way in which your output has evolved in that time? Sure. Um, I guess I started off with earrings as the gateway drug. Like it was, it was a really fantastic way to experiment and sort of create what I wanted to in a very small scale and something that's quite simple. I think if you're really interested in starting a creative side project or form of creative expression, the minute you set the bar too high, it's quite easy to go, oh, I can't be bothered, and then you don't do anything and that's a one-way ticket to low self-esteem. But if you do something that's manageable and quite small, for me that was making jewellery, Um, it's easier to overcome to do the thing and to actually feel proud of yourself that you achieved that. So I started making jewellery as a way to really to create the items that I wanted to wear that I just wasn't finding anywhere. And at the time, I knew how to use Photoshop. I didn't know how to use Illustrator. I, I sort of fumbled around with YouTube University and did some drawings and I cut shapes out of cardboard and experimented with sort of hard copy cut and paste techniques to get the shapes that I wanted. Taught myself the digital skills and then launched this thing under 
the moniker of Frida Las Vegas. And I was quite surprised that it really resonated because at the time it wasn't, it really wasn't normal to find big, bold plastic earrings that, you know, were shoulder grazing that were remotely heavy compared to a lot of other jewelry that was available at the time. So I did something that came from a very personal, and I would argue a very spiritual place for me, referencing the random ephemera, op shop, Australiana vibes that I've always had a weird fascination with. And then it got to a point where the earrings, it's like the hit wasn't enough. I needed, the canvas needed to be bigger. Like I said, jewelry was the gateway drug. And, and how long did that process last? That was probably about a year and a half. Okay. So I'm probably going to lose half your listeners here, but I'm quite astrologically minded. And no, we're going to gain. <laughs> as, as someone with Aries rising, I lose, I lose interest quite quickly. And I really just, I got over it and it became easy and I knew how to do the process. I wasn't learning anything. I felt like I was just sort of pumping out sausages, so to speak, and the sausages were, were my jewellery. And I got to the point where I thought, okay, the jewelry is great. It makes people feel fun. When they buy it, the, they get a slice of my vision, my personality, my taste. The letters that I received was just so, like, so life-affirming, the confidence that people felt when they'd wear my work. And I asked myself the question, how can I, how can I up the ante? Like, what can I produce that hasn't necessarily been done before, that's not commercial in an Australian perspective, which is basically not a white dress that you go to the races in. Um, How can I use that medium as a canvas, much like earrings are a canvas for the face? How can can I create a canvas for the body? What does that logical progression look like? And I took cues from one of my ultimate creative heroes, Ken Doan, who I'm just a diehard, tragic fan. Who, who you have engaged with, IRL. Yes, I have. Who has almost taken you under his, his big, uh, you know, um, his, Ibis wing. His big windsheeter sleeve. <laughs> his bat wing sleeve. And, uh, and seeing like a fellow sort of seeing a little spark in your eye that might remind him of a young Ken Doan. Yeah, Ken, Ken is amazing. He's, he's an incredibly kind, honest really helpful man. I, I approached him completely out of the blue, um, you know, much like you sort of would out of art school, like, hi, Mr. Doan, here's my portfolio, what do you think? And to my surprise, his assistant said, actually, Ken would really like to meet with you, and if you'd like to have a coffee and a chat, then he'd love to, he'd love to meet you. And for me, that was sort of ground zero, and I got to ask him so many questions about the process and he said to me, he's like, look, this isn't an easy game, but it's a deeply rewarding one. And you and I both come from the same planet, which for me was like, I mean, if your hero says to you, we come from the same planet, you can't get, you, you can't get any better than that. That's like better than, you know, a, a kiss from the hottest guy in school at the formal in terms of like pop factor. So Ken, Ken's work inspired me and the way that he... I guess that he created a family business around his paintings as the canvas that then a diffusion line of art fashion merchandise was created created around. And he Ken was very, very, very much chastised for that. He's never really been taken seriously as a quote-unquote real artist. 
He's had a lot of criticism throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s that, you know, he sold out and his work is only good for tea towels and jumpers and is not seen as veritable forms of art in its own right. And I really felt a kinship with that. And he just, he just said to me, he's like, look, who cares if you like it? It's pretty much guaranteed that at least one other person in the world will appreciate it. And you don't do it for that one other person. You do it for yourself. And when you follow that inner compass, um, your audience will come to you. But you have to do it for the right reasons. You, people will always tell whether you're creating work for identity construction purposes or if you're creating work to really communicate yourself your quote unquote soul and people respect that authenticity so just go go hell for leather which was yeah that was quite that was quite humbling really and and I took that advice and so from the the jewelry journey I thought right what is what is it about this process that I love and I figured out it's not actually the making of jewelry some people are very crafty and you know they love the gluing and the pliers and putting the jump rings and like I hated that part of the process I hated waiting for glue to dry and you know I'm not a small detail person in that way and I knew that the parts of the process that I loved was the concept design the drawing the art direction telling a story through a visual image empowerment through fashion um, using your body as a canvas for self-expression and jewelry didn't fit into that anymore so I decided to supersize and navigate the oh my god batshit crazy world of fashion production in Australia <laughs> what is yeah what does textiles in 2018 look like oh my god it's so hard <laughs> here's the thing so in the fashion industry people don't share their contacts as easily as I found that they would in music music or design or let's say you're a guitarist and your friend's got an amazing you know Fender Stratocaster and you're like oh that's incredible where'd you get that from chances are your friend will go oh I got it from this guy he's an amazing vintage guitar hoarder he did me a really great deal blah 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 you'd probably share that information in fashion people hold their cards so close to their chest for fear of, I guess, being found out, for having competition. It's really... It's a fear of, is it a fear of scarcity in the same way? I noticed in the, the film industry in Australia, the brief glance that I've had into feature filmmaking and, and narrative storytelling, even TV making, jobs are so scarce is the fear that it's very hard to get an entry into the space because... Everyone who's already in there has 10 friends who aren't working who they want to put in there if there happens to be a small opening. Absolutely. So unless you make that opportunity for yourself as a junior burger, it just doesn't exist. Absolutely. In fashion, is it a fear of, I don't want you to find out how cheap I'm getting that fabric or the deal that they're doing for me, or if you fill their production lines with your stuff, then when I need to make something at a pinch, I can't... Like, where is the fear of scarcity for them? I think this comes to a very deep-rooted part of tall poppy syndrome, which is not the fear of failure, it's the fear of success. And Australians' tendency to fear their, their colleagues and sort of people on their strata, not thinking that they'll fail, but fearing that they're actually going to su- succeed and be 
better. As if in, that makes uh, sense. As in, uh, my, my associate might be better than me. Yeah, I think so. Rather than realizing, you know, everyone's got their own distinct visual language and everyone has something to say and everyone has the right to express and create and do their thing. And, you know, hey, if we all shared suppliers, maybe, maybe we could help each other out and, you know, we wouldn't have to do with such huge quantities, which then might end up in landfill at the end of the day. Or like, I honestly believe there's a better way of production that involves more of a share economy approach. But like I said, I think, um, I think there's a, a, a fear of d- the design language overlapping with others, which I understand, but I, I wonder if that's just the rag trade in general, or is that just a small economy like Australia and the, the inbuilt fear of scarcity as being part of the experience. For example, there are only so many 25 to 34 year old women in this city who are going to be purchasing product this season. If you're satisfying that need, I can't satisfy that need. Therefore, I don't want you to put competition for my sales into the same market as me. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. It's very abstract, and I'm not sure why it happens, but you know, there are so many. There are so many labels around the world and I guess in Australia we're so used to this official fashion week approach of, God, I'm thinking this is so 90s, but like the Bettina Lianos of the world, the, you know, the, the catwalk. The PR company, well, the even, bluff, if, if like, only it was an independent company like Bettina, may her industry re- her company rest in peace. <laughs> may her yellow <laughs> circular tag rest in peace. But, you know, nowadays it's, it's you know, we, I wish it was an independent designer that was filling those spaces, but it's, it's, a, it's a David Jones Meyer game these yeah, days. Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm personally not interested in that game. Like, I'm not expecting to sell volume in order to have a business. I'm just not. I mean, the world... The world really doesn't need any more clothes. And I struggled with this ideologically. What gives me the right to enter this space when we've all got so many? We, we really don't need any more clothes. Why, why should I even try and bring my creative output into this level? But, you know, it was an, an itch that I had to scratch ever since I was a little kid. And that call to action is so strong. And I guess this is probably bad for sustainability purposes but I just thought you know what fuck it I need to give it a go having children is bad for sustainability (laughs) and sometimes (laughs) you just gotta make them babies that's that's right so I guess that's the journey in a nutshell but it's also you know I really had to go through a lot of a lot of oh god I hate this word but soul searching and really ask myself questions and think who who's gonna care about this why should they care who wants a farmer's union iced coffee referencing, you know, glamour sack saying suburban trash on it? Like, it's so specific. My work is not for the mass market. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, that's why I need to make it. Because as Ken Doan said, if someone out there, if one other person sees that piece of work, it inspires them, it makes them feel good, then your job is done. You've made a positive impact on someone's life. And I guess I'm, I'm drawn towards that smaller model of production and smaller model of ideation. Hey guys, Dan here just interrupting the conversation to let you know I'm currently looking for frustrated creatives 
who would like to work with me on a new podcast series I'm doing called Quit Your Day Job Intervention. So you might be a frustrated creative who's looking to level up within their creative career. You might be someone who is looking to be more creatively expressive in general, or you might be someone who's looking to discover what their passion is in the first place. I would look forward to meeting with you either in person or via Skype and offering some ideas and thought starters about what you can do to break through to the next level within your creative development. And if you're happy for me to share these ideas on the podcast, I would be more than happy to do that for free. Hit me up via direct message on Instagram at Dan Brophy or send me an email via danbrophy at gmail.com. And now back to the chat with Steph. I definitely feel like I'm in my 30s now. And those sorts of the self-doubt, like the mental dragons, the, what did Rue call it? Like your bet noir, the... Um, you saboteur. Know, saboteur. Mm. Like that inner saboteur was in my 20s and now in my 30s. I just, I can't be bothered. I don't have time to listen to that saboteur. I just, I want to have time to have fun with my friends, have fun with myself, talk to my family, like... The, the mere scientifically proven equation that familiarity breeds contempt yeah. is enough to allow you to trust that if you have the awareness of that saboteur for long enough, yeah. after a while you're like, shut the fuck up. Like, it's... Oh. You know, I've listened to you long enough. You have derailed and driven my process for so long now. So... You know, I know exactly what you look like and it's a bore, so let's just move on to the next, the other voice. Exactly. Which is the one that I haven't listened to as much, which is ambitious. You can do it. And excited and motivated. Give it a go. And generous and ready to contribute and to offer something more than just the self-serving stuff. And if that comes with age, then bring it on. Like our society's cult of youth approach to... I guess in my head, I call it the Orson Welles syndrome. The like, Wunderkind directed an amazing Oscar-winning feature film by 25. Enfant Terrible. Like, these are ideas which are extremely, extremely destructive for young people and for older people as well. Because I think it, I think it Im- implies that if you don't have a hit when you're in your 20s, then somehow for the rest of your life, you're useless. It also implies that the... Well, it's also gifted us with a world where the dominant voices are that of children. Exactly. So therefore, you know, we, we're so turned on by the idea of being, you know, a, a, a prodigy that it means that everyone that we're listening to is teenager. Absolutely. <laughs> and so therefore, as an older person who's going, oh, well, I don't think like them, so maybe I must be wrong. But actually, no, it's just that the system has duped us into listening to teenagers. Look, I'm not really interested in listening to, like, pop-manufactured Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez teens. Like, I love listening to real teenagers and talking to them about their lives because they talk about the struggles. It's not just this package which is presented as perfection or whatnot. And I think... Selena Gomez is the most viewed person on Instagram, I found out. Really? Yeah. God, it, it should... Look, in my opinion, it should be Jim Carrey now, who's turned into the philosopher that Hollywood really needs. But anyway, that's another story. But yeah, that whole con- that cult of youth thing, I'm just so glad to be in my 30s and to have left that behind. And maybe a bit of that, maybe a bit of confidence does come naturally as you get older and give less and less fucks as time goes by. It's funny how when you have so much agency and availability to doing great things and being uh, your most potent in the eyes of the world as a teenage 20 something you're so wracked with insecurity and you're mm. so uh, 
you don't believe in what you're offering, so therefore it is there's failure sort of built into it anyway. Absolutely, it's, it's very it's incredibly liberating to be you know have have to have done your thing long enough. I guess when it comes to the creative process, you can you can very easily fail at doing something that you hate. So you might as well try and do something that you love, because if you fail at that, I mean, you really you can't fail at doing something that you love. Because when you love, you put your energy and your effort and you put, you put that little bit extra that you wouldn't put into whatever you're doing that you don't love. So, you know, when I came to that conclusion after studying degrees that I didn't necessarily love, but I felt like I had to do because if I'm honest, I listen to my parents and I should have listened to myself. Um, you know, I just don't have time for that anymore. And it's taken a while to see that with uh, you know perspective and time but yeah fail doing something you love rather than failed failing doing something that you hate how depressing is that do you feel like you have to pay the piper in that you have to for me was going to work as like a corporate creative and listening to my parents and doing advertising and all these sort of things that i feel like i did so as to choose to leave mm. or choose to not make it my reality once i looked up close and personal as to what that experience was actually like. Do you mm. think that those sort of experiences are inevitable and ultimately you couldn't just jump to where you are now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no way, you know, if no, no matter what your chosen field of creative expression is, like no one's going to pay you to do it straight away. So doing the job that you hate, doing the arena that you're not that interested in, is that's a, you know, that's like drinking water. It's not good and it's not bad. It's just a reality. But... I think how you approach those jobs and even, you know, we both worked corporate sort of, <coughs> sorry, <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even say it, I can't even say bleh, corporate, we both worked corporate creative quote unquote jobs and I wouldn't give that experience away for, the, for anything because during those jobs I learned, I learned how to do the things that weren't my natural strength, like invoicing and emails and admin and... Reading um, spreadsheets. Reading spreadsheets. And, you know, I, I still look at that little green Excel, the little E icon, and I, I have a small seizure. But I know how to use it, and I wouldn't give that away for anything. So the more you can take... You can always take positives out of those sort of stepping stone jobs that get you to where you need to be. In the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's all a certain point of view. And as long as you know that it's it's not forever, but you do have to do your time and you're not going to go from receptionist to creative director in one year, as long as you know that and as long as you can then apply those principles to your passion project, then you have all the tools you need. So what would you say to a, a, the junior version of Stav, a.k.a. Free to Las Vegas, starting out on a journey of 20s, being, knowing that you are creative and knowing that you wanted to find a way to merge business and, and, and creative life together to become the one, the one entity, mm -hmm. could you have, you might not have missed out on some of those hard times, but could you have fast-tracked them or what sort of process or mindset could you recommend for someone who is in that sort of beginning stage, not necessarily to do with age, but thinking, okay, well, I, I have a rough idea for where I want to be, but I have no idea how to get there. What's, how do you design the life that then facilitates getting there? I think my first, uh, my first point would be just start. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel or it doesn't have to win the Archibald. But as soon as you start, 
that's the biggest hurdle you have to overcome because so many people have that dream project and it's floating around in their head and there's the inner saboteur going, no, you're not good enough. Don't even think about it. Stay in your accounting job. Don't do pottery. Like the, the very moment that you slay that dragon mentally and go, you know what? I'm just going to take a weekend class and give it a go. You are 50% there. The rest is just admin and time. And of, on that, how do you structure the life that then facilitates the time? Because that's the biggest challenge for some people as well mm-hmm. is, you know, you and I both worked, we, we've worked full-time jobs together, fortunately doing things that we like alongside each other, but mm-hmm. neither of the tasks, for neither of us were the tasks our end game. We mm-hmm. just, we, that was a midway point through going, I'm, we're going to use up the skills that we have to make work that brings us an income. And in the meantime, we will have a nice time doing it but the version of life prior to that was I'm just working out how to develop skills that I can sell Mm. when it came I mean you're someone who actually uses their time I think I'm pretty good with my time management you use every minute of the day (laughs) to get creative work done that's because I'm a psycho that doesn't watch TV or (laughs) that's because I'm like I'm pretty focused and I, you know, probably to the detriment of my leisure time sometimes, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend, but like I said, I'm a psycho, but, um, I think like work is inevitable. The key is people. People are your biggest, your biggest advocates. Talk to people, learn from people, connect with people. All of the jobs that I've ever, all the jobs that I've ever been hired for have always been always been because of personal relationships that I've had with people nobody has ever asked me about do I do I have a university degree have I gone to TAFE like none of that I feel like that was such a waste of time and money it's all coming it all comes down to who do you know who do you have a rapport with and if there's one secret that I can pass on people hire people that they like so if you have practical skills and you're a, a kind person who is easy to spend time with, I don't think you'll be short of work opportunities. Everyone wants to go home after a hard day's night and spend time with their loved ones, go play some sport, go to the gym, go out dancing. Like, So the eight hours or you know eight hours plus, if we're talking creative industries, that people are at the office or the studio, they want to spend it with people that they get along with. So, you know, in terms of structuring a... a a work-life balance around your creative career. Try and, and find yourself a job through friends or other friends of friends and other networks that you might know that also has practical skills that relate to your passion project. So I was working for many years in animation and ultimately now illustration is a, a big part of my art practice, but I wasn't working as an artist in an animation studio. I was a production coordinator. I was in marketing. I wasn't using my creative skills. I was like approving bum plush toys of Blinky Bill that didn't look anything like Blinky Bill. Like I wasn't using that, but I thought to myself, you know what? If I'm working in an animation studio, chances are that I'm going to get to know the directors, the art directors, the creatives, and the people in admin and the people in finance, and I will get to learn how to structure a creative business. And what a wonderful thing to be exposed to all those, all the facets of that business. So 
I would advise people to try and think about what is the practical, quote unquote, corporate version of the job or the, the passion project that they're interested in. Get your foot in the door, start at the very bottom, but take notes from absolutely everyone in the organisation because it's all gold. You're basically getting paid to go to university. Yeah, getting paid to learn is actually a very efficient way to make the most if you do have to have an income yeah. because you're you know, not where you want to be and able to earn money from it yet. You've got to be turning up to a job. You may as well be turning up to a job that can equip you with skills, contacts, tools that you can put towards your end game. Exactly. And then at least it doesn't feel like it's so painful because you're thinking, well, it's all part of the process of getting where I want to go. And so, you know, it's it's eight to 10 hours a day for them. But a lot of the ideas and and learnings are ultimately Mm. contributing to yourself as well. And I think there's something to be said for working the quote-unquote corporate job because for, for me particularly, I found that there were some unlikely mentors that came out of that experience. And I was really lucky that, you know, I was working as a PA and literally doing the coffee runs and like the, you know, the very bottom of the bottom in the organisation. But being the PA meant that I was learning directly from the top, like the executive producer. And being around the EPs and the producers really, really taught me so much um, that I didn't know I was absorbing at the time. And as painful as it was... Now, that experience is invaluable. So don't judge a position by its cover and don't be in a rush to sort of climb that career ladder. Absorb as much as you can and those people in senior positions, you know, learn from them. There's a reason why they're there. Use their time and their experience as an example and get to know them, if you can, outside of work and ask them real questions because, you know, most people are faking it till they make it. And unless you ask them otherwise, they're not going to tell you that. But the more you can instigate those honest conversations, hey, how did you actually become, how did you become the managing director? Like, what was your story? You'll find that the answers maybe aren't what you assumed. Assumption is the absolute death knell for any creative. You can't assume that someone is A, better than you practically, B, more attractive than you physically see more accomplished than you when it comes to your cv because everyone's stuck in the prism of their own mind you can't assume anything about anyone unless you talk to them and have a conversation and you'll generally find that those constructs of you know those constructs that you have of misreading and misinterpreting other people become your saboteur that then keep you in a prison of your own mind that that ultimately renders you useless against your own creative dreams so ain't got nobody got time for that also i find that people are very generous with their learnings surprisingly so oh for sure if if, if someone comes to me with a a, an open-hearted question about anything i'm so excited to share anything because it's the it's so flattering to have someone want to know your opinion or Absolutely. want to benefit from your wisdom and I and my experience of speaking to seniors and elders and people who are accomplished in fields that I look up to I've never not been met with a positive response to my to my interest the worst they can say is no or the worst they can say is not replying to an email which is ultimately a no but in this in the scheme of time and space in the universe that's not that's not that rough like and people get busy and they've got their own lives but you're absolutely right generally people are really 
they're really happy to answer those quite personal questions about how they got to where they are. But Australian society is not a culture that necessarily encourages deep questioning when you first meet someone. Like, I think we have a very surface level, hey, how's it going? Like, oh, so what are you working on? Like, well, how's your weekend? How's your weekend? Oh, well, look, I also think it's worth flagging that in some industries, in, in many spaces of the professional work that I've understood, I've only been able to have those experiences by choosing my the time and, and place in which I have those conversations specifically, yeah. mainly just so that they're not, you know, people are busy, people are distracted, people are also private. So it's always been really uh, well met when I've said, can I take you out for coffee for 10 minutes? And I just, you just make the stakes really low. I'll, you let me know when you have 15 minutes spare and we'll go to a place that's convenient for you and I would love to buy you a coffee Absolutely. and just pick your brain for 15 minutes because I, I and also if you allow them to feel like that what they tell you means something, you can allow them to, to realize, I'm just looking for uh, to plan my next steps mm. to, towards a career that looks that's in the same realm as yours. And I would love to pick your brain about, you know, what might be a great place for me to investigate further. Because you're not saying to them, help solve my problem for mm. me. You're just saying, you know, oh, the stakes are low enough that, you know, people got to drink coffee. You may as well just, you know... Have some kid asking you questions for 10 minutes while you're grabbing one. In the words of the great early 2000s Australian girl band, Cherry, I don't want your money, honey. I want your love. (laughs) To the point about the way in which you structure your time to be as effective as it is, I know as someone who is time poor but ambition rich in terms of what I want to achieve creatively, it's very hard to say, all right, I'm going to be creative between 7 and 7.45 when I have to run out the door to get my bus. So how do you ready the space in which to do good creative work? Okay, that's a really good question and something I've struggled with because, as you said, like you can't just poo out a great idea. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So I go with the flow and I might wake up and go, no, I know I need to do this. Oh, I need to do a new collection. Oh. And if I'm not feeling the vibe, then I also... I'm now consciously not trying to put myself under that pressure and go, you know what? You're not in the zone today, Stav. Don't worry about it. Do some boring admin stuff. And then when the, the iron does strike, like when the Zeus thunderbolt of creativity comes, and unfortunately, it's always when you're busy. It's always when you know, you're at work and you're you know, on someone else's time. There's nothing like a good toilet break and a quick like, you know, sit there on the john writing in your notes on your iphone (laughs) and like write those ideas and then action them later because it's the actual ideation part that those lightning bolts don't come every day so when they come capture the bolt but then like file it away for later and we've all got these incredible devices called smartphones in our pockets like use them and it doesn't matter what job you do you can always sneak like a toilet break to write that down so i would probably say that and Personally, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm, I've, you know, much like most ambitious people in the world, I'm, tr- I'm trying to structure my life a la Tim Ferriss and go, when am I m- my most productive? And I figured out that from 7 a.m. till 10 a.m., that's my on time. Like I said, I'm a psycho. Who is, who wakes up early and gets, who gets their creative hit in the morning? By the, by the time it comes to two, I'm knackered. Like, I'm useless because I've used my brain. I've had my spark. So 
I'm lucky that I'm working freelance and that I can do this, but I try and structure creative time in the morning because I know that that's when my juice is already and other stuff goes to the second part of the day. But by the time it comes to the evening, like I passed out at nine o'clock last night, literally like a nonna, (laughs) so bad, but you know, I, I know that's how I work. And so I don't try and fight it. I roll with it. So the age old adage, know thyself, know when you're on. If you're a night owl and you do your best work at night, which I wish I could because you tend to not get distracted as much at night because people are sleeping, you know, you don't have social media pinging every two seconds, you know, people become quiet on social after nine. Um, Whatever the time of day is, know when when you're on fire and act accordingly. And sometimes sometimes you've just got to say no to social social stuff. stuff. It It sounds sounds awful, but... You know, I feel like there's always a birthday, there's always a this, there's always a that, and it's really hard to be all things to all people. And navigating the, I mean, in my case, being a good wife, being a good friend, being a good daughter, you know, I, I can't please everyone, and I've spent, I've spent so much of my life trying to please everyone, and I'm at the point now where... If you're a true friend, if you're a true supportive family member, if, if you really know me and you know what's important, you're not going to guilt trip me because I, I couldn't come to this because I had a, a deadline for drawing for my exhibition. Or, you know, there's a lot of people pleasing that I did in my 20s. I'm being really honest with you here. And I think I've, I think I've stopped that because that was making me all things to many people and ultimately getting in the way of what I wanted to produce in the world. You literally can't do it all. And I think something that you brought up before, which is something I've been thinking about, is this concept of satisfaction. When will we feel satisfied? When is that point where we go, all right, the thing that I, I set out to do, I did it. I find, for me, that benchmark always changes. The stakes get higher. Um, the dragon becomes bigger to slay and I, I have to look back and go, all right, remember when this was a really big deal, you achieved that. And, and I have a book now where I write down the positives of my work and this could be anything. This could be, you know, like I wrote down meeting with Kendone. Like for me, that was a real win to be able to have a chat with, with my idol. That was huge. So when I'm in those moments of, God, what am I doing? What's my end goal? I actually have it on a piece of paper that I can look back and go, you know what? In the context of things, this year has been great. You've, you've, done, you've done good, kid. Because we have such a tendency to just gloss over our, our achievements because we don't note them down and because the benchmark does get higher and the level of satisfaction that we wish to get, you know, becomes further and further. I can only imagine what it's like being you know, like someone like Beyonce or like, you know, a really, a really high level, let's use music, like a a pop star. And you've got, you know, one album that was amazing. Actually, let's use Katy Perry because she's a good example. So she's just come off, um, you know, Teenage Dream, like the, the album that sold more than Thriller, that has more number ones than the Beatles and Thriller combined. And, you know, this huge monster of an album. How does she attack her second album? Where can you go from that? There's only one way you can go, and that's down. And even for someone like Katy Perry, you know, what was she satisfied when she 
when she did Teenage Dream, she was just coming through her divorce with Russell Brand. Did she allow herself to feel satisfaction and go, you know what, I've just had an album that's bigger than Thriller and Billboard chart history, but, you know, fuck my ex-husband's a knob and I'm really sad right now. I, I guarantee you it probably wouldn't have been enough for her because that's the human condition. It's never enough. In the words of New Water, it's never enough until your heart stops beating. So satisfaction is a really, really interesting concept and something that now when people, people that I know and, you know, even just people in passing talk about the concept of success, I've come to define success not through money or power or glory or any of that, but I think success is tied in to satisfaction and that can be as little or as big. I can feel satisfied knowing that I've had a really wonderful chat with you today talking about some really high level concepts and I can go home and know, you know what, I just had a really engaging chat with a dear friend. Today was good. Or I can go, yeah, I didn't, I didn't create a sellout show or, or I didn't sell a million units today or, you know, success and satisfaction are very much intrinsically linked, but we have to be realistic with satisfaction in order to stay sane. <laughs> well, so a gratitude, having gratitude in general, but in particular, if you need to formalize it so that you identify what you're grateful for, keeping a gratitude journal and even listing, I, I, I interviewed someone earlier on in the year, Sam Kavanagh, who's a radio producer, and, and part of his morning routine is just a five-minute, three-point gratitude journal wow. that he does every single morning. And something about going to your, the, your, your higher mind, your frontal cortex, and taking aligning your day with that part of your brain it's got to be good for business oh absolutely and it's good it's good for your soul business to be able to think hey this is awesome like hey i'm alive like what are the chances of all the billions of cells in the entire universe that resulted in my parents having sex and you know a sperm and an egg coming together and it, it turning into whatever this abstract blob of humanity is that's me like a what are the chances of that B, what are the chances of like bumping into these other blobs of humanity in my orbit that happen to be kind, hardworking, intelligent, sensitive, incredible people? Like, that's gold. You can't, well, once you get on that level, and I think maybe I'm, I am a bit of a chance person, person now. now. Once, Once you're on, on that level, level I, think I think your own issues, issues about, about your own work, work tend, tend to, to sort, sort of disappear. Because <laughs> you put yourself in context. It's like that at the beginning scene of Men in Black when they sort of zoom out from the earth and you know all the universe just becomes marbles that these giant aliens are playing with. Where we found you now, at this point in 2018, you're about to go from looking at the concept of being an artist in an abstract way to actually doing something resembling an art show you're about to do a residency at the Imperial in Sydney, which I got an invitation for yes. but a few days ago. Talk to me about that and what that journey from textiles into now actually being on walls oh. as an artist. Hey, look, it's incredible. And I started this journey at a gallery called Disorder last year. I had my first show called The Bold and the Beautiful, which was um, an experiment for me and it took took a lot of courage to go, right, I'm about to call myself an artist when A, I haven't been to art school. B, why should I call myself an artist? What credentials do I have? Saboteur voice, wah, wah, wah. And then I went, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. And that was a really positive show and it was a really great start. 
with the Imperial, I was really lucky to have met their incredible events team and um, have met them when the upstairs was recently renovated. And it's such a beautiful space. I mean, obviously, it's got an incredible historical um, angle as a very iconic space for Sydney, especially in the LGBTQI arena, um, as a safe space since the 80s. But for those that don't know, the Imperial is the bar in the opening scene of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's where the bus first leaves. It's amazing. And that's the that's the the bar that housed and celebrated drag in probably one of the more f- you know in, in one of the forefronting ways. That's right. And. I, it was pure luck that I got to meet the events team and I was just chatting with them and was like, hey, wouldn't it be great to do an art show here? Like, you've got white walls. I've got an artistic universe. Like, let's let's do something together. And to my ultimate delight, they were so supportive and said, yep, let's do it. Take Take over the space. Like, we've got a space. Our business model is not through art. A commercial gallery's business model is and so you know they're not really going to create opportunities for emerging artists to show their work because their prices aren't going to be as high but with a pub they've got less to lose and especially with artworks that are in a similar visual world um, it just really adds to the experience for their customers so the, the more that I think about things the more I'm really excited about showing in I don't want to use the word unorthodox, but I'm interested in showing my work in spaces that are ideologically harmonious. That's not necessarily the white cube, um, Charlotte in Sex and the City, like New York loft gallery style scenario. I'm finding these other spaces really, really interesting. And Sydney is definitely not an easy place to find space. Space comes at a cost. And I've really had to define what can that space look like and, you know, where can, who, who is my audience? Where, where are they? What are they going to, what are they going to see that's going to make them feel special? Chances are my audience isn't going to be at a commercial gallery in Paddington. They're going to be at the Imperial and they're going to see a portrait of Paul Capsis and go, oh my God, Paul Capsis. I love Paul Capsis and they'll understand the cultural reference points. It'll touch them in a way that's more personal. So I'm definitely becoming more audience driven in my thinking and going, where can I, where can I speak to the people that, that I want to be speaking with in a more efficient way? And the Imperial is a really exciting space to be able to do that. And there's something about what, you know, what would Ken Doan do about the process of rethinking the traditional gallery experience oh, and, absolutely and look and it, it's a commercially minded but yet it transcends the traditional commercial model by going to the marrow of work meets audience in a in a space that is conducive to them interacting with and engaging with the work that is not traditional absolutely and i think it's you know ken's work made people feel happy his work continues to make people feel happy. It's colourful. It celebrates the iconography of, of our city. It's, you know, Sydney's version of Gauguin. Like, it's, his work is just so positive. And I do feel that the art world has... It leans towards very political art and art that has... That comes from a place of pain and sorrow and anger and response, which is absolutely fine and that's you know everyone has the right to create work from that emotional point 
But I'm interested in creating work from the other side of the spectrum and I want people to feel happy when they see it. Turns out there aren't that many spaces that are devoted to happiness, but pubs, clubs, um, retail spaces, hair salons, like there are other spaces whose, whose modus operandi is joy and they're the types of places that I want to be working with to create a new visual language and a new idea of you know, how a commercial artist can operate. So yeah, it's, it's new territory, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do next year, but I think, I think it's time to move and do something in Melbourne, in Sydney, in Brisbane, in Perth, in Hobart, and really start engaging with different capital cities and going into regional centers and sort of getting out of Sydney a bit and being like the traveling circus, so to speak. <laughs> There's something about your work which is very, it's Australiana. I mean, the, new, the show is called Australiana Eleganza. And there's something about the work which to me suggests putting a, cele- celebrating nostalgia and usually then they're more niche references than mainstream references, which, which if you get them, they turn you on even more because you've got a connection to this thing that's not as well known or maybe comes from a far-reaching part of your... I mean, I think you and I spent more time looking up obscure TV commercial references on YouTube than maybe we did actual work together. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But has the... Over time, are you telling the same story but what was once in Perspex is now canvas uh, glamour sacks and will soon be hanging on walls in the Imperial? Is it the same story, just told different ways? I think it's, I think it's the same flavour, but I think the story has become richer and more honest. It's become more honest because when you're thinking about design and creating an earring collection or you know necklaces and headpieces, there's a design quote unquote story you have to follow, like colours that naturally go together, symbols that talk to each other, and I shapes think- that make the face look a certain way that's right but when you're talking illustration like really you can those sorts of constraints aren't there so i think i think the prints and um my neon artworks and the glamour sacks they're an extension of that with the flavor but it's almost the difference between like a one-line synopsis a one paragraph and a full page like i feel like this is the one paragraph in terms of the art and maybe the neon pieces are the full page. Like that's the work that I'm the most proud of and that aligns more so with my soul. And if there's, you know, if it doesn't speak to you to that very deep, dark part of you, then you shouldn't be doing it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about sharing this work with the world. And it's really, you know, I've chosen a medium, which is like, Oh, prohibitively expensive but I just went fuck it like I love neon I'm not going to use um, LED lights or a flexi neon I want it to be the real deal 100% 80s throwback neon and the, the guy that bends the neon worked on the coke sign in the 80s and you know I have this connection with him now like as a a genuine genius blowing glass and making shapes and so much neon is made offshore but everything that I get is from Australia and that comes from from a fashion perspective too everything is made within a five kilometer radius from the fabric printing to the garment construction to my place it's all done in Glebe Leichhardt Marrickville and I'm not sure there are too many other 
clothing labels or I guess art diffusion line labels that can say that and I'm really I'm really proud of that I could have gone overseas but I chose not to so it would be it would be a sad contradiction for something that celebrates Australiana to be made offshore for sure absolutely and I think there's um my friend Tim was telling me about this Indian designer the other day who gosh I wish I had her name on speed dial but she was giving a talk and someone asked her how important it was that her work was ethical and she said you know what i'm kind of over this ethical fashion discussion we shouldn't be talking about it like it's a gold star it should just be assumed that and it should be the norm that your work is ethically produced so this conversation is boring i'm over it next question and i thought that was such an amazing response to that the ethical debate so yeah i can't make clothes that you know have um ibises on it and it's made straight out of shenzhen (laughs) so i I do like to end by asking my guests if they would if i were to bump into you in a year's time what is a project that you would love to have either completed or be well on your way to completion to say yes that thing i was working on i've nailed it it's done i'm really happy with it oh gosh that's such a great question Look, I come from an era where the coming-of-age teenage film was something that was, like, such a thing. I have this deep-seated desire to make a film one day, and, I, I, you know, I made short films back in my early 20s, and I came from that world, and I sort of detoured through design and art, and, but ultimately, I, in my current framework, I would really, really love to make a film. And I don't know what that film is. I know that it would need to speak with teenagers in some way. Like the looking for Alibrandi of the 2020s. That would, that would be the dream. But also even some kind of like, I don't know, I'm really, oh God, this sounds mega lame, but I'm sort of interested in trying stand-up comedy. <laughs> Why the hell not? Look, I, the people that I admire so much, they're all comedians and... You know, I think I have the, you know, all comedians have that like philosophical bend that gives them the ability to poke fun and laugh at life. But I'd really love to try it. It it terrifies me. What could be worse than standing up in front of a group of people and, you know, having them go, make me laugh? Like, really, that's the stuff that nightmares are made of. So maybe I should give it a go. But in terms of, I guess, my freedom world, I don't know. I guess I just want to keep, I just want to keep making and I want to make people feel happy and I want to meet people that make me feel happy as part of that process. There's no distinction between my pseudonym, my work and my life. Like it's all the same. The real, I guess the real work in progress is my life. So I want it to be something that's... um, God, that sounds so terrible. But I guess in filmic terms, like I am the director of my own life. I get to choose who am I casting in it? Who are the people? What's the script? I don't want my script to be, you know, down in the dumps, feeling unworthy, feeling incapable of being loved and giving love in return. I really, I don't want that to be my script. I want the script to be having the best time, learning every single day, having a laugh, being inspired by the people around me, injecting some colour into the world, making life a little bit easier for others. That's the kind of film I want to, I kind of want to make with my life. So, 
I guess anything that fits within that brief, really. That's what I'd love to be doing. I think we need to make a short film at least. <laughs> is it time to, to, to do mermaids properly? Is it time to go back to our early 20s? Yes. <laughs> no, it's so important to have belief mirrors to bounce back what you think is important to you. And a big part of that for me is you. Oh, Dan, stop it. I'm blushing. (laughs) I think it's, you know, what you said about having those, those seemingly small references that, that touch you or that you think, wow, like that's what I was thinking in the back of my mind. I can't believe someone else has thought that too. I'm the, the more time goes by, the more I am becoming so humbled by the idea that small things have very big consequences and that applies that's across the board that's making someone's day a little bit brighter by you know helping them across the road or if they drop some stuff at central in the middle of peak hour you help them pick their stuff up that's talking to a friend not just saying you know how was your weekend or glib questions that don't really mean anything that's saying hey how are you like how are you really going What's your work process like? What are your challenges? Um, You know, the the small things do have big differences and it kind of makes or breaks your day and we can all just be a little bit kinder to each other and give give each other a bit of a break because life is tough. This is not easy, but we've only got one life. So let's just try and make it, God, let's just try and glide through it. It's an oil slip to our graves, you know, so... We might as well. <laughs> we might as well have a party as we're we're on the slip and slide to doom, right? And free to Las Vegas will equip you sartorially for that journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan.